You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. All right, let me put another one up here. These are the words of Jesus. This one comes from John 10.10. It says, have we got that one? I came, I'll read it for you, it's short. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. All right, so I give you those verses this morning, and I want you to just answer this question honestly in your heart as we begin here. Do these promises resonate with your experience of following Jesus? Because the popular perception of following Jesus, of being a Christian, is that Christianity is a list of rules to follow. It's perceived as, as, as asking people to do without the good things in life, at best. And then at worst, that it's, it's a bunch of narrow-minded killjoys who want to go around making, else, making sure no one else enjoys life either. And see, the problem with that, the problem with that, the problem with that isn't, it's not the scriptures and it's not Jesus. The problem there is that mankind has constructed religion over and over again in a way that wants to add to. It, it's, it's, like, it's like human beings are, are trying to say, what, what can I do? This, this does, it seems too simple. What can I do to make it harder? Because I'm trying to get to God. And if I want to get to God, it must be harder than this. So Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and, and sin sort of comes in then and says, well, well that, that's too easy. Let's, let's take that truth, and then, and then we'll add to it some requirements, and then we'll be free. So one of the characteristics of man-made religion is that we want to make it harder than it should be. And I have good news this morning. I have good news because we're going to look at a passage that where Jesus just demolishes false righteousness. If, if your perception 
of religion is that, that Jesus comes to add a bunch of things to your life that, that make you do things to make life harder, then we're going we're gonna to see this morning that he just wants to take that apart. Because all those passages that I read are true. They really are. Jesus really did come so that we can have rest for our souls. He really did. And his burden really is light. And he really did come so that you can have abundant life. And he really did come to set you free. So we're going to take a, a fairly large chunk of Luke this morning. Just like last week. This is, this is going to, these are three passages that if you've been around the church very long at all, they're probably familiar passages to you. But, but what connects them is that we have Jesus here sort of provoking the religious establishment. He's going to them and he's sort of putting his finger right where it hurts so that he can break down their codes of righteousness, the things that they've added. And let me be clear just at the outset, because I don't want you to be confused. Jesus never takes on the Old Testament law. He never does. He never criticizes it. He only takes on the codes that people have added to it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three controversies this morning, and, and then with each controversy, we're going to look at the misunderstanding that surrounds that controversy. All right? And, and, and we're going to see the, the rules that the faithful have added if you're going to follow God to make it more difficult than it needs to be. And we're going to see that these rules weigh down and they exclude sinners and they distort God's plan for human flourishing. And Jesus just comes in and says, I don't, I don't want any part of that. Here's, here's what it means to follow me. Okay? All right, so the first one, controversy number one, comes from Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. If you have your Bible, you can open there. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And, and this controversy number one is a controversy about Jesus' associations. This is a controversy about Jesus' associations. Look at verses 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right, so the, the word here that Luke uses when it says that Jesus went out and, uh, and, and saw a tax collector, it actually means that he went out and he was like looking around. It's like Jesus went out in the street and he was like, okay, who is the worst sinner I can find? I'm going I'm to minister to the worst, ah, uh, Levi. I'm going to minister to you. Okay, you, Levi, come and follow me. So that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And, and you, may, you may be familiar with this, you may not, but in the scriptures, in the New Testament especially, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Okay? So Roman government, this was bad enough. They, they put taxes on everything. Uh, you could be taxed as a Roman citizen. You could be taxed on your land. You could be taxed on your sales. You could be taxed on your possessions. So there was all these taxes that Rome wanted to collect. And then what they would do is they would go hire people, Jews even, whose responsibility it was to collect those taxes. And the way they got paid was to charge a surcharge. And there was just all kind of room for abuse, okay? So, so, so Levi's job was to go and get money from you for the Roman government and then say, well, that's going to cost you this percentage extra. And so pretty much in the minds of most of the Jews, these guys were robbers. They were just people who just took money from you. And they were hated by everybody, Jews and non-Jews alike, but especially the Jews, 
They, they were listed among uh, Sabbath breakers and dice players and murderers and, 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 and people like that. It was, it, these were unclean people. And if you were a tax collector and you were a Jew, you could not even come into the synagogue. All right? So this is the kind of guy that Jesus finds. The worst sinner he can find. You, Levi, come and follow me. And Levi's response, for what it's worth, is the same as Peter's that we saw back at the beginning of chapter 5. He just gets up, and he, he leaves his tax-collecting business, and he follows Jesus. And y'all, make no mistake here. Levi is a sinner. And, and Jesus does not excuse that, okay? But neither does Jesus berate Levi for his wickedness. Jesus doesn't go out and say, Le you, Levi, here, here are all the things you've done. You need to stop. You need to stop that and come follow me. He just goes, he just goes to Levi and says, here's the invitation. You, you come and follow me. And, and it's important to note that Levi leaves that, that old life, the life that was characterized by sin, and he comes and he, he seeks a new life in Jesus Christ. But this is key, y'all. Jesus is not on attack with Levi. He's on a mission. He's on a mission to save. And that's so important as we consider these associations here. So, uh, verse 29. Levi made him a feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. So Levi goes out and he says, you know what, y'all? All my buddies, I have met Jesus, and he has changed my life. And I want you to come, and, and I want you to meet him too. So I'm going to throw a feast at my house. And so he invites all these tax collectors and others. And Jesus goes right into the middle of that unclean mess. Y'all, what do you think was being discussed at a dinner like this? Like, what was being talked about? I mean, these aren't people who would have cleaned up before they came. You know, so, you know, maybe they're like, hey, man, I, I, this old lady, I swindled her out of so much money the other day. My, my prostitution business, it is going so well. You know, there was this guy, <laughs> it's so funny, he refused to pay me, and I sent some guys, and they, they beat him up, and I ended up getting even more money out of that guy. Y'all, there may have even been some, some foul language. Some, some Jewish curse words. You know, I, I, go, I, I go out, I used to, used to more, uh, but I, used to, I go out and play golf, you know, and you go out and you get paired up with somebody or maybe a couple of guys and they're out and they're playing. And I, I've waited as long as I can, you know. If so, you know, generally somebody will end up asking, what do you do, you know? Because every time, if, you know, the, you know, the guys, and they're just talking. They're just, they're guys, you know, and they're talking and it's, it's, you know, and they'll say, you know, we'll get to like the fifth or the sixth tee or whatever, and they'll say, what, what do you do? I'm a pastor. <laughs> and inevitably, I, I would say inevitably, like, if not right then, a hole or two later, one of them will come over and be like, I'm really sorry about the way I was talking earlier. I didn't, I didn't know you were a pastor. Y'all, these people, they wouldn't have thought, they wouldn't have thought anything about Jesus. They would have had no reason to believe that they should talk any different around him? Okay, and then the other cool thing about this is it says that Jesus reclined with them. Because what you have to understand is that a feast back then, it was a really intimate occasion 
And like, so when you think about like the Last Supper and these times when all these people in that day would have gotten together, like get that Leonardo da Vinci painting out of your mind, okay? It's not a bunch of high back chairs with everybody sitting and facing one direction, all right? That's, that's not the way they ate. They actually, they, when it says reclined, they, they laid down on pillows. They had pillows and they would have like a, a low table and you would, sort of, you would sort of like lay on the pillow with one hand and you would, you would eat with the other. So, you know, like you got somebody's like stinky feet right in your face. You know, I mean, Jesus is totally like down with these people and they're laughing and joking. And, and you know, I don't, this is what I think. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's what it says. And I just don't picture that he is sitting there being like, don't, 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 don't talk like, oh, 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 oh. Don't use that kind of language. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's laughing. I think he's treating them well. I think he's, he's speaking kindly with them. He's ministering to them. He's getting to know them. So there's a controversy here. There's a controversy. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. The, the word in the Greek, there's an onomatopoeia. Remember onomatopoeias? It's words that like sound like themselves, like sizzle and kerplop. Those are onomatopoeias. This word is gurgudzu. And it's like, they're grumbling. That's what they're doing. And, and, and so for, for them, this is not even just a question of association. There's like a big ew factor. It's like, oh, Jesus, I can't believe you would. Why are you going and spending time with people like that? It's like they're afraid it's going to rub off. And, and just to be clear, Jesus is breaking no law from the Old Testament. He is breaking no law. These were rules that were added in by the religious leaders. They are absolutely superfluous to anything in the Old Testament. And then the other thing is Jesus is not denying that these people are sinners. He knows they need a Savior. Like, Jesus is not excusing their sin. And so, to the question, why are you spending time with them? Jesus replied, it's, it's actually like the summary statement to his whole mission. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not called to come the righteous, but sin, call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These are exactly, I am here because these are exactly the kind of people I came to help. They see their need, and you don't. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. And so that brings me to misunderstanding number one. And this is, this is the misunderstanding that I think that, that many people have about what it means to follow Jesus. And that is simply this, that the church is no place for sinners. That's the misunderstanding, that we are a bunch of people who gather together and are just righteous together. And it's a total misunderstanding because in reality, what Jesus is saying here and what we understand throughout the New Testament is that in fact, the church is no place for the righteous. Church is no place for the righteous. The church is a gathering of people who know we are sinners and I'm not sure why that's so hard to understand. I'm, I'm not, what is it about our sinful hearts that want to warp that? Because it's really simple. Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners? Because I came to save sinners. 
he doesn't want to lay a heavy burden on you. He doesn't need you to get all cleaned up before you come into contact with him. Let me just say, he wants you to come to you right now. Maybe you looked at a lot of stuff last night you shouldn't have. Jesus wants you to come. Maybe, maybe you texted things to another person this weekend that you should not have. Jesus wants you to come. Maybe you've done things in an intimate way with somebody who's not your spouse. Jesus wants you to come. Maybe, maybe you've done unethical things in your business this week. Jesus wants you to come. One of the great lies, I think, of Satan is to whisper in our ears, you can't come to Jesus because you just did that. That's, that's the lie. Maybe the burden you carry is that people are going to find out who you really are, that you're not as put together as you seem like you are, that your home life is chaos, that your mar marriage is falling apart. You can come to Jesus like that. You can come and say, Jesus, help me to want to ask you for help. So come to Jesus. There's no question about association. The church is a place for sinners who need to be saved and who know that they have been saved by a righteous Savior, not for people who are righteous. We have to keep moving. We have a lot to cover this morning. Let's move on to the next controversy then. The next controversy is a question about fasting. So the first one was a question about associations. This one is a question about fasting. So right after that, we don't know how much time, but Luke obviously wants us to put these two things together. He says, and they said to him, meaning the Pharisees, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The first thing I learned from this is that Apparently, this party at Levi's house wasn't the only one that Jesus went to. Because the, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus' disciples and they say, what's up with all the feasting? Like, shouldn't you be doing this fasting? Like, righteous people aren't supposed to enjoy themselves. What, what are you thinking? This is supposed to be kind of miserable. All the godly people we know fast and are mad about it. What's, what's going on? So here's the deal with fasting. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and they fasted on Thursdays. But there was only one fast that was prescribed in the Old Testament. There's only one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, when the, the high priest was sacrificing the bull and the goat and taking the blood in and putting it on the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a covering for the sins of the people. The, 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 the Bible instructed the people to fast, to afflict themselves on that day. So that was the only official fast that, that was prescribed. Now, there are other times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when people fast. Moses fasts for the people on Mount Sinai for their sin while he's up there for 40 days. Um, sometimes they would fast because they were mourning, like if they lost a big battle to the Philistines, or David fasts when the, the, the baby that he conceived with Bathsheba is sick. And then fasting is also done at various times out of like national repentance, okay? But none of those are like official fasts. None of those are officially prescribed by the law. And, and there are very good reasons for fasting, but it was always supposed to be a matter of the heart. 
Fasting is a matter of the heart. And the Pharisees had turned it into something that was meaningless and hypocritical. They had turned it into something that was totally external. They would fast twice a week as a a sign of righteousness. In, In the parable, we'll get there in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like that tax collector because I, one of the reasons he lists is because he fasts twice a week. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of, of fasting. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. See? So, so in our day, I mean, this, you, know, you, would, you wouldn't just fast. This would be like, you know, I'm fasting, I'm fasting and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a selfie. And you put it on and you're like, fasting today, feel horrible, but I'm fasting. Because you just want to let everybody know, look at how righteous I am. Look at, look at what I'm doing to appease God. So Jesus, why don't you make your disciples show their righteousness by fasting like everybody else does? So Jesus says, Luke 5, 34 and 35, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus simply says, would you make somebody fast at a wedding? Y'all, in the, in the New Testament time, I mean, it's still today, but for the Jews, there was no bigger celebration than a wedding. When the bridegroom came, the, the bridegroom would, would ask, this is very, you've, you've heard this language in the, in the Bible. You know, I, I, I go... I, I go to prepare a place for you. When, I, when, I'm, when I'm done, I will come back to where you are and I will get you and I will take you to be where I am. That's this wedding language because after they would get betrothed, the, the bridegroom would go away and he'd build a place to live at his father's house. And when he got that done, he would start a parade and he would, he would start marching through the streets. And, and if you're, you know, if you're, if you're carrying groceries, you're setting those groceries down and you're clapping and singing because everybody's dancing and it's, it's a big party. And then once you finally get to the door of the house where the bridegroom is, then it's on. The, the, I mean, where the bride is. Because the bride is so excited. And it's just this huge... And, and so Jesus is saying, would you at that moment, right as the bridegroom is coming to, to meet his bride, would you at that moment say, you know what you really should be doing is fasting. You should be disfiguring your face right now. And Jesus is just pointing out that this is how much they are missing What's going on? I'm the bridegroom. I'm that guy. Think about this. Last week we saw Jesus healing a guy, a paralytic, and forgiving his sins. So why do you fast? Well, you fast because of repentance. Oh, and you fast because somebody is sick or dying. What are you fasting for? The guy who can heal disease is standing right in front of you. And the guy who can forgive sin is standing right in front of you. Don't fast. Just ask him. Rejoice. You're missing it. He's there. It's like Jesus is saying, why are you fasting? Is somebody sick or dying? I can heal him. Somebody need forgiveness? I can forgive him. If it's neither one of those, stop. Stop your fasting. And I'm not going to make my disciples fast either. So 2,000 years later, how does this apply for, to us? Because we're, Jesus has gone home. He's seated next to the Father. We're still awaiting for the bridegroom to come back and to get us in the church. We're still dealing with sinful hearts and sick bodies. 
But here's what I think is the glorious, relieving truth of the gospel in this case. It's this. Following Jesus doesn't mean you have to be somebody you're not. You don't have to put on a mask. The misunderstanding here, by the way, I I skipped it, but is righteousness is not a mask that you put on. Righteousness is not a mask. It's not something you put on on the outside. So here's here's what I mean by that for us today. We can all gather here and we can cry out to God together this morning because maybe some of you are feeling really weighed down by sadness this morning. Maybe you're here and your life is hard. Maybe you're here, you're begging God in prayer to, to deliver you, to deliver a loved one from sickness or sin. Maybe you don't feel like being all happy clappy right now. Well, you are free to come here and worship with God's people. And you can, you can sing or you can mourn and we'll mourn with you and we'll pray with you and we'll comfort you. You don't have to be somebody you're not. Maybe you're weighed down by your sin this morning. Maybe you're just feeling, I just, I need to repent. We'll, we'll help you with that. Or maybe, maybe you're here this morning because somebody you love is about to be baptized. Maybe you are on cloud nine. Maybe it's a child or a loved one or a dear friend, and you have been praying for that person for months and, and years, and, and they have repented. You're free to come and worship, and you don't have to put on a sad face. We will rejoice with you. We will mourn with those who mourn. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. What's important is that we come and that we worship from the heart and not that we try to be somebody that we're not. It may even be appropriate. As we wait for the bridegroom for us to fast in anticipation of his return, we may fast in repentance. We may fast in sorrow. Uh, We may even fast as we ask him for things that we we, we dearly wish, that prayers that we wish he would answer. Whatever the case, let it be motivated by a heart and not by a desire to put on some kind of external righteousness so that people can see. You know what? Because for us to be taken seriously by the world, we need to be people who are living appropriately according to the the needs and the emotions and the joys and the heartaches that people experience. All right, third controversy. I know we're moving fast. The third controversy then has to do with two questions about the Sabbath. And they're found in Luke 6, 1 through 11. And you'll notice I skipped a little section right there. We're going to Come back and hit that real fast at the end. All right, so in Jewish life, there was no bigger deal than the Sabbath day. And there was no bigger expression than the Sabbath, okay? So look at this first one, verses 1 through 5, eating on the Sabbath. This has to do with eating on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, what are you doing? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so in this case, Jesus and his disciples, they're just walking on a path. It's the Sabbath day. They're going from one place to another. They get hungry, and they start to grab some grain and rub it between their hands and eat it. Now, The issue here is not that they're stealing, okay? So there was a provision in the law that if you were traveling, it's still, people still do this in Israel today. If you're traveling, if you're walking through a vineyard or a field and you get hungry, you can stop and and have a little bit to eat 
to sustain yourself. Okay, so that's, that's not the issue. The issue is this. In picking the grain, the Pharisees are saying, you're working on the Sabbath because you're reaping. You're harvesting. Just by stopping and eating in the field, they're breaking the law. And remember, Pharisees had all these laws, all these, like, Bill talked last week about, you know, there's, like, the law, and then there's these fences, you know. So, okay, so you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, you shouldn't, you know. One of them was a, a woman can't um, look in a mirror on the Sabbath because if she looked in the mirror and she saw a gray hair, she might be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be considered reaping, harvesting. These guys are real serious. They had a very specific amount of distance that you could walk on the Sabbath day, which basically meant you, sh- you needed to live close enough to a synagogue because you didn't want to walk very far, which is very interesting to me because what are these guys doing in the field? It's, it's a funny picture, you know? Jesus, either they're following along or they're like hiding in the grain field and they're like, ha-ha, I got you. I caught you. You're eating on the Sabbath. Well, how'd you get there? Did you like wait all night long? You must be far from a synagogue. How does this work? So they're hiding in the field, and this is what religious people do. They try to catch people. I gotcha. It's like they got a whistle. They want to call fouls every time they can. Jesus points them to a passage. It's in 1 Samuel 21. Make a note. You can look at it later. Basically, in that story, David is desperate. He's on the run from Saul. He needs weapons, and he needs bread. So he goes to this priest at Nob, and the priest is like, I got, I got no bread, but I got the holy bread that's in the temple that's only supposed to be eaten by the priests, you can have that. And pretty much the point Jesus is making is, hey, God's law is not meant to keep us from having our needs met. God's law is meant to meet our needs. And if you're hungry, take the bread, take the grain. And Jesus says, he says, besides, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, which basically means this. I created the Sabbath. I get to decide what happens on the Sabbath. And I'm okay with this. All right, so let's look at the second story then, healing on the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, they all said to him, stretch out your hand. He said to them, sorry, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So again, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. And they're here, they're they're, they're ministering on the Sabbath, and they want to catch him doing something. And so they, they, there's this guy there with a withered hand. And it's possible even, what it's possible maybe they even brought him in. Or, or maybe he was standing in the back and they were like, you come, come to the front. We want to see what happens when Jesus sees you with your withered hand. And what's important here too is that this man's life was not in mortal danger. Okay? Because it was actually established that on the Sabbath, you could save a life. You could do something in a, in a life-saving situation. So a, like a midwife could assist in a birth and that wouldn't be considered work. Or even if somebody was breaking into your house and your, your life was in danger, you could respond to that on the Sabbath. That wasn't work. So what's important here is that all this man has is a withered hand. And they want to see what's Jesus going to do. And they think they've got him trapped. 
But Jesus turns the tables. And he says, God never intended for the Sabbath to be this big prohibition. Y'all, get this. Do you know what the Sabbath was? You know what the Sabbath law was? It was a law for the whole nation of Israel that said, on the seventh day of the week, that's Saturday, you're not allowed to do your job. Don't work. A, a law for an entire nation. Don't let your children work. Don't let your animals work. Rest. Be restored. Think about how great that is. You have to rest. The law says so. If you're a farmer, don't farm. If you're a fisherman, don't fish. If you're a student, don't do homework. It's that simple. And it doesn't mean that you have to lay around on the couch all day either. You can go eat. You can play. You can race camels. You can go for a walk in the hills of Galilee. You can go for a swim in the Sea of Galilee. Do you see how awesome this is? What if we had this law? Students, what if you were prohibited from having homework on the weekends? And if a teacher gave you homework, you could just like pick up the phone and call the police and they would take her away. <laughs> Put her in jail. How do you ruin this? And that brings us to misunderstanding number three. God gives us commands to make us more difficult. God gives us commands to make life more difficult. 1 John 5.3 says, This is the law of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Did you hear that? God's commands are not burdensome. God does not want to fill our life up with things that make our lives more miserable. He wants to lighten our load. And so God gives Israel a day to rest, and they turn it into more work. And we do the same thing. God says, I'm going to give you a church because I want to surround you with people who can help you. I want to surround you with the body of Christ. And we say, okay, well, that's fine. But if you really want to be holy, you need to be there five nights a week. And if the doors are still open and you're not there, you're not righteous. And you need to wear uncomfortable clothes. That's what we do. God, God gives us his word and says, this is a light, a lamp to light your way. And we're like, that's fine. But you're going to need to like master some you know, dead European theologians and have a really nice place set up so that you can take pictures and show everybody where you do your quiet time. Then you'll be righteous. Our prayer. God says, ask me. Just ask me. And we're like, but you need to speak in the King James, and you need to make sure you've got an hour, otherwise it's not worth it. That's not holy at all. I was like, just, just ask me. Don't turn God's good gifts into a burden. There's a fascinating little passage, Deuteronomy 4. Moses says that if the people of Israel will keep the law, this is what it says. It says, other nations will say, surely this is a great nation, wise in understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all of this law that I have set before you today? Do you know that they had a law in Israel that on the seventh year you had to rest your field, and during that seventh year, you could not take a loan payment from somebody. You had to give them a year to recoup. Y'all, what if we had that? Like, what if every seven years, you didn't have to make a house payment? God gives this awesome law, and they figure out ways to make it a burden. And Jesus, Jesus does the same, y'all. He comes to give us life, and he comes to give us rest, and he comes to give us peace. And let me, let me give you this encouragement this morning. 
And that is this. Read the Bible and find out what it says. And do that. Don't pile things on yourself and other people. Find out what Jesus says and do that. Let me conclude real quick. I'm going to just back up very quickly to Luke 5, verses 36 through 39. I skipped over it. I know we've covered a lot this morning, but let me just sum up real quick, briefly. Man-made religion said the church is, is only a place for the righteous. And when you come here, you need to put a mask on so that you can look righteous. And oh, and brace yourself, because when you follow God, he's going to make you do a lot of things that make life miserable. And Jesus just explodes that garbage. He absolutely explodes it. Here's the parable at the end of chapter 5. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. And this simply means this, y'all. Jesus doesn't want to put himself into our old, worn-out religion. He doesn't. So, so just like when they would, they would take a wine skin and it would be the skin of an animal and they would fill it up with wine and they would tie the, the ends off and you would always put new wine in, in new wine skins so that the skin could expand with the wine. And Jesus says, you don't want to go and put new wine skin, new wine into old wine skin because as the wine expands, it'll just blow up the wine skin. Okay? That's the point he's making. He's like, y'all, I haven't come to insert myself into this false religious system. If I try to pour myself into this false religious system, it's just going to blow it up. Okay? I have brought a new way. And then this goes for us too, y'all. Jesus does not fit into our old lives. We can't, he doesn't just become something, he's not a bumper sticker that we stick on the back of our car along with everything else that we're into. He comes to bring us something new and better. Levi's life of swindling doesn't fit into Jesus's message. And so Jesus's message, hear me this morning, Jesus's message is this. If you are a sinner, then I would urge you to hear that call and get up and follow Christ. Don't cling to the old. And it's so appropriate that we come to this passage when we're talking about baptizing. Because when we're baptized, we go down into the water and it's this picture of our old lives and of going down and, and, and that, that old life being buried and then we come up and it's, it's a picture of new life and cleansing. There's that one last verse there, verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And y'all, this is a sad commentary on people who maybe have known Jesus their whole lives. Because I, I grew up in here in Savannah. I, I grew up, I went to church around here. I know the culture. And if I had to describe church culture in Savannah, especially when I was growing up, I would call it busy. You're just busy. You gotta be there. And then I went to, went to seminary and I, I, I went to churches and it was busy. And if you weren't there five nights a week, then you weren't righteous. And, and listen, I, I'll confess, I was the guy who sometimes was like, why hadn't anybody else here? If I gotta be here, everybody else should have to be here too. Because that's the way we think about it. Maybe you, if you've, if you've been around the church for a long time, maybe you're a person who feels a burden and you just do stuff so you can feel righteous. And my encouragement to you this morning is this. Let that old life of busyness go. 
Let that, 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 that burden of busyness for Jesus' sake go. And let him bring you eternal life. I think we're going to get to heaven when this life is through. Maybe we can all get together one day and talk about it. Let's make a date. Like 200 years from now, let's all get together. Let's talk about this. We're going to talk about this, and we're going to say, boy, we missed it. It was a lot simpler. It was all a lot simpler. That fog of sin was still in our minds. If we had just seen how simple it was. So will you open your eyes to the glories of Christ this morning? Don't, don't sip that old wine. Enjoy the new wine of the Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for passages like this that can open our minds to the ways that we are so easily tempted to distort your word into something bad, rather to enjoy the good things that you have given us. Father, now as we turn to baptism, would you give us hearts of rejoicing? Lord, may we celebrate out of a true sense of joy to see brothers and sisters who have come into your church rejoicing uh, that, that they too follow Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.